0: Greetings and welcome to the Asian American and Asian Research Institute's Friday Lecture Series Online Edition. I'm Anthony Wong, Program Coordinator of the Institute. Uh, I'd like to welcome everybody out at home on this beautiful Friday evening. Thank you very much for spending your time with us for tonight's talk on Love, Life, and Death in Transnational Adoptions from Asia by Kit Myers. Uh, This talk is based on Professor Myers' upcoming book supported by the Betty Lee Sung Research Endowment Fund. Uh, which explores how the orphan figure, uh, birth and adoptive families, and sending, uh, meaning Asian, and receiving uh, United States nations have been configured in transnational adoption discourse and law. Kit Myers is an assistant professor in the Department of History and Critical Race and Ethnic Studies at the University of California, Merced. Uh, he received his doctorate and master's degrees from the university of california san diego in ethnic studies and his bachelor's degree in ethnic studies and journalism from the university of oregon Uh, prior to his current position he was a chancellor's postdoctoral fellow at uc merced Uh, his research examines adoption family and kinship specifically in the ways that they intersect with race gender sexuality immigration citizenship nation and indigenous sovereignty Uh, He has published articles uh, in Adoption Quarterly, Amerasia Journal, Adoption and Culture, and Critical Discourse Studies, as well as co-edited a special uh, issue on adoption and pedagogy. Uh, He also serves as an executive committee member of the Alliance for the Study of Adoption and Culture. Uh, Please welcome Professor Kit Myers.
1: Yeah, thank you.
2: Anthony, uh, for your kind introduction. And uh, and yeah, thank you all for, for being here today uh, on a Friday afternoon or, or evening for you. Um, uh, yeah, I'm joining f- uh, from Merced, California. And I just want to uh, begin by acknowledging the uh, Awani, Chi, uh, Miwok, and Yukut uh, Indian tribes, uh, who are the original people uh, of this land, and the Lenape, uh, who are the original inhabitants of Manhattan. Uh, or Mana and uh, we, we acknowledge uh, this to honor the tribes, their lives, um, their survival of settler colonialism, displacement, and genocide, uh, but also because of the work that they continue to do to, to, to this day to assert their uh, presence, sovereignty, self-determination, and resistance to settler colonial structures and logics. Um, for me, it's important to remember uh, in, that in the work that we do, um, that, that we all do, which is important, uh, that we not only avoid uh, reproducing settler harm, but also think about how we can contribute to uh, decolonial practice. Um, so I'm, I'm really excited to share this space with you all tonight. Um, I want to give a special thanks to um, to Ari for inviting me to speak. Um, this invitation emerged as Anthony <laughs> mentioned from being awarded the, the Betty Lee Song Research Endowment Fund in um, 2021. Yeah, this is the title uh, of the talk for today, uh, Love, Life, and Death in Transnational Adoption from Asia. And um, you'll see my social media right there. The talk being enabled by by receiving this award um, was made possible by the, the incredible generous, generosity of the late
1: uh Dr. Betty Lee Sung and um she uh, just recently passed and
2: uh I learned of uh Dr. Lee in 2017 at the AAAS conference the Asian the Association for Asian American Studies conference in Portland and she was awarded uh, a lifetime achievement award there and, and so uh, I, I learned that she was, a, you know, an educator and activist and, and, a, and a, really a pioneer in Chinese and Asian American studies, uh, Chinese American and Asian American studies, and helped establish the first uh, Asian American studies department on the East Coast in 1970, uh, was a co-founder of Ari, um, was extremely active in the uh, Chinatown community and, and local politics. And so she was a giant and a hero for so many people. And um, and so I just want to thank um uh, Betty Lee Song and and uh, um and Ari. Um so today I'll be presenting a portion of my chapter from my book, um which is a book it's a book manuscript, so it's it's uh, under review right now, and um it's uh entitled The Violence of Love. Race, Adoption, and Family in the United States. And and this talk is from a portion of a chapter, which is uh, tentatively titled, uh, Love, Life, and Death, Opposite Futures, and the Protection of the Wrong Subjects. Uh, And and specifically, this talk will focus on the first part of that chapter, which is the, the part concerning
1: this concept of opposite futures. So I'll begin with these three uh, quotes, and this is from a TV
2: show uh, called Harry's Law. Um, So the first quote is, this isn't chattel here, we're talking about a child uh, from Judge uh, Seabrook. And then the defense counsel for uh, adoptive parents, U.S. adoptive parents uh, says, It's not about them, the biological parents, or them, the adoptive parents. It's about Lee, her best interest. It cannot be in any child's best interest to remove her from her only family that she knows, her parents, her sister, her country, which is now America. My heart goes out to you, the biological parents. I simply cannot imagine your pain here or the
1: horror that have been lost the last four years of your life. If it were about you, I'd hand the child over myself, but it's not. It's about Lee.
2: And then from uh, Branch, who's the lawyer for the Lee's biological, biological parents, or birth parents. Um, imagine if a child were abducted, taken to a different country. The parents go to that country to get their child back, only to hear the, the, that, sorry, the child belongs here now. That would turn our stomachs. The very reason we have this Hague Treaty is to prevent this kind of horror. These quotes are from a 2011 episode of Uh, called American Girl, from NBC's hit drama, uh, Harry's Law, And uh, the plot showcases this emotional legal struggle over a girl who's adopted from China between her American and Chinese parents. Um, So these are the adoptive parents um, uh, right here. I don't know if you can see my cursor, but um, the adoptive parents right here. You'll notice um, this person is Sterling K. Brown, who actually plays an adoptee, uh, transracial adoptee on This Is Us. Um, and But in this show, he's an adopted parent. And then the Chens, who are the birth family, and then the, the judge, who's um, a Black woman. Couched uh, in the human rights discourse of best interest of the child, the story illustrates the complexity of transracial and transnational adoption, family, and the law. As the plot unfolds, the audience learns that Mr. and Mrs. Chen uh, had their daughter taken away from them when she was only two years by local Chinese family planning uh, government authorities based on the one-child policy. Their daughter was then legally, uh, you know, legally adopted by Mr. and Mrs. Thomas, an African-American couple in the United States. Um, according to Branch, the prosecution lawyer uh, for the Chens, the, the law was on their side because both the United States and China. Uh, were signatories of the Hay Convention. Um, and although uh, Ch- Judge Seabrook uh, articulates a sense of empathy for the Chens, um, saying that if her daughter had been abducted, she too would, quote, hunt her down until the ends of the earth, she she ultimately sides with the Thomases, stating, quote, Mr. and Mrs. Chen, I'm deeply sorry, but I cannot justify upending this little girl's world, end quote. Uh, thus, any empathy and rights for the birth parents are trumped by the rhetoric of, quote, the best interests of the child and, relatedly, her future prospects in one family versus the other. This story presented in American Girl uh, is, is uh, a television drama, but it nearly matches uh, and seems to draw on the controversy uh, covered by the New York Times in August uh, and September of 2011 which reported that at least 16 babies were taken by family planning officials between 1999 and 2006 um, in Longhui uh, County of the Hunan province in southern China. Um, In 2005, Chinese and foreign news media reported local government officials and uh, orphanage employees in Hunan sold at least 100 children to orphanages uh, who were then adopted by foreign adopted parents. Uh, traffickers also targeted migrant and, po- and the poor uh, migrants in the poorest villages, uh, abducting and buying children, uh, whom they sold to orphanages. While the this concerned many adopted parents in the United States, most of them, along with the U.S. adoption agencies, uh, did not fully address the controversies and the the possibility that their child might have been abandoned. Uh, or orphaned as they were told. They might not have been abandoned or orphaned as they were told. Uh, So I I lead with this uh, corruption cases in China because they not only touch on the dangers and complexities and contradictions of transnational adoption as uh, what Kim McKee calls an industrial complex um, within a a neoliberal global political economy, but they also point to the ways that uh, representation, such as Harry's Law, the show, um, works to construct the, uh, the figures of the orphan, birth and adoptive parents, and the nation. So standard summaries of uh, corruption in China point to local government officials exploiting poor, vulnerable birth parents, with adoptive parents hoping that they remain outside of the pulling mess. What this narrative ignores is that despite the designed protections from the Hague, uh, the Hague adoption convention. Uh, con- con- uh, convention. Uh, this corruption uh, is the circulation of capital and illegal movement of bodies uh, continues to feed the adoption industrial complex at the demand of adopted parents and exp- at the expense of uh, birth families. This uh, episode is compelling because of the way it assuages the the anxieties of uh, illicit and uh, corrupt adoptions through the promotion of uh, multicultural, post-racial uh, narrative unique to the United States. Not only are the adoptive parents African-American, but the judge is also Black and adopted by white parents herself. Um, here, uh, she's also a transracial adoptee and mother. Then this highlights the, the multiple embodiments of um, American post-racial families. So J- Judge Seabrook's uh, curated uh, intersecting and uh, important or most importantly successful identities of being a judge, a black woman, and both a mother and a transracial adoptee help explain how she can adjudicate this complex case. Um, so it's a discomforting verdict, but one that the audience can ultimately agree with because the, the, the decision was never really uh, in doubt. So the research questions for this uh portion of the research, is, uh, you know, how is the best interest of the child determined in transnational adoption policy making? What are the sorts, uh, what sorts of already existing violent structures and representations are operating in order to activate and facilitate transnational adoptions? And um, how does transnational adoption as a loving act produce further violent outcomes um, in the legal sphere? Um, so this talk uh, is concerned with the the dis- discursive and legal protection of the orphan figure, uh, birth and adoptive families, and uh, sending Asian countries and the U.S. as a receiving nation, uh, and how they have all been configured in liberal adoption discourse, uh, as well as neoliberal domestic uh, and international law. So I critique the, the neoliberal notions of humanitarian care, uh, subjectivity, and family that have uh, been formulated Um, through transnational adoption and um, through the the afterlives of U.S. empire. Uh, The prevailing belief from uh, reform-minded transnational adoption advocates is that uh, there needs to be more accountability to avoid scandals, um, but this misses the racial logic surrounding transnational adoption that make them problematic beyond scandals. So to understand uh, transnational adoption's underlying ethical dilemma, It requires an investigation of the discursive and legal productions of these seemingly pre-fixed concepts um, of best interest um, and the fixed uh, subjects like the orphan, the adoptee, birth parent, adopter parent, and also spaces such as orphanages, Asia, and the United States. Um, Such an analysis illuminates how these figures are powerful, symbolic tools um, compelling a a reconsideration of the best interest axiom in ways that reveal how adoption can be loving, but also violent in practice and representation. Here's um, the the argument for today. Um, You know, although the Hague Convention states that every adoption case must consider the best interest of the child, I argue that the U.S. representations of transnational adoption, um, this has already been predetermined based on racialized accounts of each family birth and adoptive, and nation, ascending and receiving countries, um, which are socially constructed in distinct relation
1: to each other as uh, opposite futures for the orphan. Um, in other words, the, the, the Asian orphan, uh, actual or not, um, who
2: emerges already uh, as a racial other and ultimate victimized object uh, in need of rescue, can only be saved from death or bare life through adoption by white adopted parents who are opposite uh, racial subjects. In order to attain a full life and future in the United States, um, <clears throat> with this framework of um, opposite futures, um, you know, I consider this uh, imagined opposite spatial and temporal path. Um, this life versus death uh, and, and uh, kind of thinking about this idea of freedom from violence. And so I'm thinking both spatially and
1: sort of on a on time, like the the past, uh, present and future, right? Um, and so adoption and love transform the orphan into an adoptee who is
2: a fully modern subject who can be afforded the privilege of permanency, economic stability, and above all, a parental love, um, all of which the birth and or
1: um, even adoptive Asian parents in the space of Asia could not provide. So, um, adoptions from China began in significant numbers in
2: 1992, and between then and 2021, uh, it has become the largest sending country for U.S. families. Um, or the largest sending country uh, of adopt children to, to U.S. families um, who have adopted more than 95,000 children from China, which uh, equals um, nearly 30% of all transnational adoptions during, during that time period, uh, during about that 30-year time period. Um, China is somewhat unique because as a sending nation, it was almost always perceived as being efficient and having the best institutional safeguards. The, the US government um, um, has at some point placed 17 countries on temporary or permanent moratorium because of known or suspected abuses and corruption. Uh, and unlike scandal ridden countries such as Cambodia, Guatemala, India, Nepal, and Vietnam, China was thought to have uh, had a clean record for transparency and uncorrupt supply of healthy infants. Yet this representation of China contradicts the West imagination of it as a morally bankrupt and human rights violating communist country. Uh, To be sure, even within this contradictory representation, China still mirrors larger symbolic representations of Asian countries, such as South and North Korea, uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, and India, as uh, spaces of immorality, ineptness, cultural backwardness, and or communism so it's from this demographic and historical context that i use china as an example for thinking about race and specifically asian you know vis-a-vis the the west so and and how this informs the way that law and transnational adoption are imagined in practice um i argue that the international human rights embodied by the hague adoption convention uh, emerges from this already existing racial knowledge about Asia and the U.S., um, which, again, contributes to the ways that the orphan, birth, and adoptive parent and families and nation are are defined and prescribed. Um, So the most significant um, law passed to date concerning transnational adoption is the 1993 A. Convention on the Protection of Children and uh, Cooperation in Respect of Intercountry Adoption, Um, And it came on the heels of um, the UNCRC of uh, 1989, this Convention on the Rights of the Children, which began to address, among uh, many other issues, uh, the the issue of transnational adoption and the right of the family. So building on this initial steps of the UN Convention, the Hague uh, Adoption Convention is a, a multilateral treaty that established international standards and safeguards. In response to questionable and unethical practices such as abduction, sale, and trafficking that mired the seemingly uh, virtuous practice of transnational adoption, so its aim is to quote ensure that intercountry adoption takes place in the best interests of the child and with respect to his or her fundamental rights. Um, While the U.S. was a signatory to the hack in 1994, it actually didn't ratify it until 2007. Um, there's 105 contracting states and uh, or nations, and uh, the hack is generally consi- the the Hague uh, Adoption Convention is generally considered a, a constructive and beneficial development. Um, yet many uh, adoption supporters have have criticized it because they say that um, in an effort to stamp out corruption um, and exploitation uh, th- that uh, so, so they agree that we need to stamp out corruption and exploitation, um, but sending countries uh, do not have the resources to implement this, the standards and regulations. And, and the other critique is that the lack of international um, supervisory body, which makes it really difficult to, to stop the these uh, exploitative and corrupt practices. Even with scandals, you know, agencies and the U.S. government continue adoptions until government intervention by a sending country um, sort of stops them. So legal scholar David Smolin states that uh, there is a strong financial incentive to look the other way. Quote, uh, United States agency personnel are financially or ideologically motivated to, quote, believe the best uh, and doubt negative reports, minimize abuses, and keep the system open and running at all costs, even when abuses become apparent, end quote. Um, Despite multiple cases of corruption and exploitation, um transnational adoption continues to be supported by a large majority of practitioners, experts, and government officials, and those already touched on adoption. Um, in fact, u s families have been able to adopt from non hague ratified countries such as South Korea, um, Ethiopia, Nepal, and Russia. So these are countries that did not sign the Hague, and so there's no um, there's no international oversight. Um Ethiopia was not even a signatory while the other three countries never ratified uh, the hague convention and um while South Korea is the only country that still facilitates transnational adoption, Ethiopia and Russia stopped in two thousand and eighteen and thirteen respectively, and the u s has stopped adoptions uh, from Nepal. Um, these adoptions happen outside of the Hague Convention framework, and they illustrate the machine like quality of the transnational adoption industrial complex. Um, you also have various laws, um, domestic laws like the multi Placement Act, the Adoption Tax Credit, and the Child Citizenship Act, um, which work in conjunction with the Hague Adoption Convention. Uh, and they're perceived as, as these moments of inclusion and progress for adoption policy and practice. Um, ad- adoption in this context uh, moves from uh, it's troubled past to um, being uh, being uh, exclusive, discriminatory, stigmatizing, unethical, and illegal to um, being inclusive, respectful, uh, ethical, cultural, um, uh, democratic, and humanistic, and, and all of these things. Uh, so for as long as we focused... Uh, so for so long, we've focused on... Uh, exclusion as the, the basis for understanding racial subjection. Um, so it makes sense that adoption supporters on both sides of the political spectrum are confused as to why some uh, want to stop this quote-unquote inclusive and loving act that transcends difference. According to to UNICEF, the, the organization most cited uh, for statistics, there are Uh, 147 million orphans in the world. Uh, For most people, the term orphan conjures the image of helpless and parentless children um, or child, and and many dictionaries use this definition as well. But UNICEF and other aid organizations define orphan as any individual under the age of 18 who is uh, without one or both parents. Perhaps more stunning, only 4% of children and institutions are true biological orphans, uh, where both parents have passed. Elena um, Kim argues that the orphan is this highly mediated and sentimentalized social and legal figure who represents a government's notion of bare life that is in need of rescue. Uh, Laura Briggs adds to this conversation by arguing that the visual imagery of a mother and her child are way uh, her through the the last century, has helped shape the politics of transnational and transracial adoption uh, in terms of liberal interventionism and the notion of rescue. And she critically engages this, what she calls the visual uh, iconography of rescue uh, that manifests in these sentimental narratives and the rescue trope of transnational adoption, along with the, the, the dependence on the stereotypes of Innocent, sick, helpless, and crying children, uh, vis-a-vis the cold, the the culturally cold, indifferent, backwards, and um, and grateful, um, and/or grateful birth parents. So I add to Cam and Briggs's examination of the orphan and rescue by highlighting the 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 temporal, the time, and the spatial or the space aspects of this connected uh, narrative. So while Rescue connotes removal from danger. I contend that adoption as rescue marks originating countries as spaces of imminent uh, or inevitable death, while adopting countries are spatially and temporally marked as an opposite and better future that enable freedom from violence and full as opposed to bare life. U.S. politicians uh, rehearsed this spatial and temporal rescue narrative during the steps. Prior to implementing the Hague Convention in 2008, Uh, in the congressional hearings on the implementation of the Hague Convention on Intercountry Adoption in 1999, the dominant sentiment was that the transnational adoption was a key solution to children in need of a loving permanent home and that the United States in particular was a positive future for them. So these are uh, quotes from the actual hearing, the congressional hearings. Clearly, international adoption saves, solves problems. Children, um, living with, without loving families, uh, and in often terrible conditions have an opportunity for a very bright future. Sorry, a very bright and optimistic future here in the United States or with adoptive parents in other countries. And this is, uh, democratic, uh, representative. Um, Sam uh, Jemison, that transnational adoption was a quote, bright and optimistic future and solution for children was clear because the United States had this long history of welcoming and caring orphaned children. Uh, Mary Ryan, an ambassador and Assistant Secretary of State for Consular Affairs reminded everyone of this fact. The United States, particularly since World War II, has opened its arms to orphaned and abandoned children around the world. And many parents look to international adoption to build American families and provide a better life for these children, end quote. Indeed, transnational adoptions that followed World War II, the Korean War, and the war in Southeast Asia, along with representations of dest- uh, destitute orphanages and uncaring institutional workers, produced the image of the waiting Asian orphan and loving American
1: adoptive families in our collective imaginations. Republican House Representative Thomas uh, Liley uh, painted the
2: picture in his opening statement. Thousands of children worldwide are waiting helplessly for parents to read to them, to teach them how to tie shoelaces, to say bedtime prayers with them, and to eat ice cream with them on a summer night. It is in the best interest for a child to be a part of a loving family. The Hague Intercountry Adoption Act gives the u s Congress an opportunity to stand up and reaffirm our support for inter-country adoption. I am proud to support this bill because I've been blessed by my own experiences with adoption, so now I'm doing what I can to help thousands of innocent children find a home. These uh, statements from the 1999 congressional hearing uh, exemplify the ideological presumptions uh, in adoption discourse among government officials. They point to the ways that discourse about loving Christian American families and democratic U.S government have facilitated the incorporation of overseas orphan children who need homes. Uh, Bliley's admission of being touched by adoption in his own family illustrates that the personal and familial are intimately tied to political decisions. All American activities, such as reading books and eating ice cream, convey the simplicity of this situation, that children are in need, families who can provide loving homes and the government that can facilitate the process. Um, so just before the ratification and implementation of the Hague Convention uh, in 2007 and 8, uh, Congress held another hearing in 2006 on Asian adoptions in the United States. Similar to the 1999 hearings, uh, we have Senator Larry Craig who said, We are entering a new era of international adoption by Americans, an era which the federal government has a critical
1: role in the adoption uh, process. So Thomas Atwood, um, sorry, uh, Thomas Atwood, who's the president of the National Council for Adoption
2: and has written a statement for the hearing. This is again, 2006 now. The benefits, uh, quote, the benefits of intercountry adoption to children are indisputable. The clinical records confirm what common sense tells us, the outcomes for children who are adopted internationally are better than those for children raised in institutions or in foster care, end quote. So here, Otwood uh, added that the truth seemed self-evident, that given the choice, most people would choose loving permanent family through inter adoption over living without a family in a country where one happens to have been born. This dire need narrative, coupled with uh, scientific certainty of positive outcomes, um, activated the government's continued role in facilitating such adoptions. The opposite future narrative, however, does not just rescue orphans from, uh, quote, terrible conditions to a better life, but it also rescues them from imminent death. So in the same year as as the 2006 hearings, Harvard Law professor Elizabeth Bartholet, who is a prominent adoption scholar and an outspoken uh, proponent of transnational and transracial adoption, um, and also an adoptive parent of Peruvian daughters, uh, employed policymakers to think emphatically about the child at the heart of international adoption debate. In this uh, law review article that she published, she narrates this hypothetical, rational conversation between herself along with the audience, um, and a typical child uh, to convey its experiences, needs, and wants. And so she presumes this child uh, is a girl in China because there are more girls available than boys, and China is the top sending country. So she describes how the child um, would first want physical attention of being held, fed, comforted, and played with, kept clean, dry, and warm, and then emotional connection Uh, and educational stimulation that would allow her to build strong relationships and succeed in life. Bartlett then questioned what the child would prefer in terms of preserving her, quote, birth heritage, uh, growing up in her birth country and being uh, adopted domestically in her country of birth uh, or staying in an orphanage or being placed abroad in a loving, adoptive family. Offering details to help make this decision, she described the institutional living conditions of this universal child, which, again, she imagines as a Chinese girl, right? Um, so she she says, uh, quote, she, the Chinese girl, she knows from her daily experience that the orphanage is a horrible place. When she screams for attention because she is hungry or cold or wet or just alone, nobody comes. Attendants arrive only every four or six hours, and they leave immediately after hurried diaper changing and bottle-popping events. She would notice if she were capable of understanding that infants around her stopped screaming after a while. They learned that screaming does not produce any results. Her current orphanage is fairly typical. Some are far worse, with infants dying at a high rate and children whose biological age is in the teens, lying in cribs, looking as if they were toddlers, unable to talk or walk because they've been so deprived of the attention it takes for a human being to actually develop. And here's where what you see begins. photographs of some of the living the still living children in certain of these institutions look like photographs that could have been taken in Nazi death camps, except here the subjects are children bone thin, expressionless, and staring back emptily at the camera eye. Bartlett's ex- exercise on examining the child uh examining or imagining what the child would want um, gets at this seemingly simple decision of choosing adoption over detrimental institutions. The invocation of Nazi death camps conjures Giorgio O'Gaman's uh, formulation of bare life and those who may be killed uh, to unprecedented degree. Um, and her comparison suggests that the institutionalized children who are not adopted are bare life because they exist in spaces of widespread death and extreme deprivation. In this situation, the orphan is marked as a damaged racial Chinese subject in a uh, deleterious um, racial space and time that's anachronistic, ill-equipped, and inept, um, and is the ultimate victim. Indeed, the identification of the global racial difference explains not only the orphan's lot in life and the need to be rescued, but also that the West be the rescuer who prevents the orphan from dying in the way that China cannot. Indeed, transnational adoption presents a future that guarantees full life. Full life here represents not just being rescued or a better future, like domestic adoptions in China might, nor the idea or even promise of an American dream, like a typical immigrant future does. Rather, it represents an unquestionable guarantee of an opposite future precisely because the orphan as what Alina Kim and Kim Park Nelson call a non-immigrant immigrant immigrant, is being rescued by a white American family uh, to the United States. So Bartha continued her imaginative exercise and illustrates this above above point by writing, she she might grow up um, wondering about her racial or national identity, wondering if she's truly American or truly something else, However, we should also tell her that many people in her country of birth would be thrilled to have the opportunity to go to the United States, especially if they could get the kind of education and other advantages that most adoptive children would enjoy, so that they could participate in what is still seen by many throughout the world as the American dream. We should tell her that the research shows adoptive children do very well on all measures that social scientists use to assess human happiness and that it reveals no evidence that the child are in any way harmed by being placed internationally. Finally, we should tell her that the research shows that children raised in significant periods of time in institutions do terribly badly in all of those social science measures. So in the second quote um, about the hypothetical child, the Chinese girl, uh, Bartha shallowly concedes that identity struggles the the child might have, that they might have to negotiate. Uh, And this is ignoring surveys and studies that have shown a majority of transnational adoptees have had to contend with these issues. So for Bartlett, the U S offers this opposite spatial and temporal future embodied in the American dream. And despite the qualifying usage of, you know, many uh, Chinese adults and people throughout the world, um, Bartlett's statement advances a position that uh, for her is irrefutable. uh, In distinction, um, being raised in an institution like an orphanage means the child would do terribly bad, right, Uh, and and her statement leads to to this conclusion. Um, It seems obvious to me that this infant would choose uh, if she could choose. She would choose not to spend another day or hour in the institution if at all possible. She would choose to go to the first good adoptive home available regardless of whether that was in her country or birth or abroad, so that she could begin living the kind of life infants deserve and need in terms of their day-to-day satisfaction, in terms of their prospects of normal development, so that they can live and thrive as adults. So while Bartlett indicates support for both domestic and transnational adoption in her imagined orphan Chinese girl, she never represents what an adoptive Chinese future could look like. Um, outside of the institution, nor does she consider how state and local governments might assist birth parents so they could reunite with their children. Uh, The cultural distinction outlined by Buckley becomes a proxy for racial difference. Thus, not only is racial difference ascribed to the orphan figure, but also to the space in which the orphan occupies and her future um, attached to that space if she were to remain in China. Her articulation of China China, uh, presents it as anachronistic, um, and despite orphanage care, domestic adoption, and foster care all improving in China by the mid-2000s, uh, Bartlett and others continue to express the solution to children orphanages is to bring them to the United States. For her, the choice is based on these truths is uh, obvious, right? It's only through transnational adoption that um, these children can, can achieve full life. Um, and that they can't be uh, thriving and fully modern subjects in the space of Chinese institution that portends death. The scandals that have plagued transnational adoption have only made this narrative stronger. For example, in 2006 hearings, the officials argued against implementing um, the Hague Convention. So again, the Hague actually isn't ratified in 2006 yet, and so they're they're arguing against it um, because the fear that would inhibit transnational adoption. So this is uh, Senator Mary landrew, and in her testimony, she expressed frustration uh, with the government over, when government overreacts. Um, that could, and this could ultimately harm children and adoptive families. Uh, believe me, nobody wants to eliminate fraud more than our delegation, our whole caucus. But I want to say this for the record: when a bank is robbed in Chicago, we do not shut down the banking system. We go find the bank robber, we put them in jail. Every time there's one stealing of a baby or, you know, one violation of crime, everybody starts shutting down international adoption. And we don't realize when they do that, they literally sentence children to death, literally. And they disrupt the lives of thousands of good tax-paying, church-going American citizens. And I'm going to fight against these closures and we keep going through, that we keep going through. And we need to keep the system open, transparent, and it is a literal lifeline to children and a happiness line for parents. In the statement, uh, Senator Landrieu is arguing the importance of preventing child trafficking and corruption, but places this greater emphasis on the continuation of adoption, which is justified by the narrative of life, freedom, and happiness for the child. Um, and similar to the language and debates about foster child, uh, uh, the foster child, foster care, and domestic transracial adoption. Um, these statements articulate the Asian orphans as ultimate victims with a future in which they are sentenced to death, um, while the white American adoptive family, who is uh, the good taxpaying, and church-going uh, subject, is the victim of regulation. So the second part of my book chapter um, that this is based on explores how adoption discourse and practice centers the protection of adoptive parents over and against Uh, children and birth parents. And this is demonstrated also in the congressional hearings and by Bartlett's claims. Like she, for instance, makes this claim that paying birth parents who would relinquish their child in any event isn't actually the worst evil. Um, And then the latter part uh, outlines how transnational adoptions do not guarantee an opposite future. And it does so by examining issues of rehoming and uh, deportation of transnational adoptees. Um, so, the issue is that receiving countries' uh, adoption agencies and adoptive families do not actually become illicit or unlawful, nor do are they perceived as contributing to illicit adoptions. in other words, transnational adoption hinges on accepting trafficking and illicit practices as normative or unfortunate but not de- but not uh, a detrimental side effect. Uh, children are laundered through the adoption process after suspect conditions of relinquishment, and thus the Hague Convention states that every adoption case must consider the best interest of the child, but in U.S. legal discourse and practice, uh, this decision has already been predetermined. In tracing the representational uh, configuration of the orphan, family, and nation, I've tried to show um, how both the conditions and violence required to make transnational the transnational post-racial family. Um, as the Harry Laws episode, American Girl, shows transnational adoption is complex. It can be loving and violent at the same time. Nevertheless, the show also reconfirmed what we already knew, that the United States and the American family constitute the privileged space and actor in transnational adoption. Even though international law was supposed to be on the side of the birth parents, Mr. and Mrs. Chen, the national law, uh, this case, Justice Seabrook, Confirms that her status should uh, that the child's status uh, should be remain American because the U.S. represents uh, re- representation deems China and even her birth parents is unable to fulfill her best interests. Indeed, the loving possibility of returning to birth parents is imagined as a traumatic future, uh, providing another example of how birth parents and country of origin are constructed as uncertain and violent spaces. This talk isn't to claim that there's not such a thing as the orphan, um, but it's, uh, or, or that change in action aren't needed in adoption. Um, while there's some truth to the idea that children who are adopted domestically or abroad may have better chances of not experiencing certain types of harm, the unquestionable um, certainty of full life um, is not actually guaranteed because of various types of violence that follow uh, adoptees or emerge after the adoptive uh, the act of adoption. So abuse, neglect, racism, alienation, uh, rehoming, um, murder, or deportation. So the point here is to examine how orphans become legible, how birth parents are erased so that uh, the child can be detached uh, and a freestanding orphan. And while orphanage and institutional care can be dire places. Uh, Barthollet's imagery and narrative leaves no space for children and caretakers to inhabit what Yen Lea Espiritu calls, quote, the politics of living. For Espiritu who is thinking in the context of refugees, the politics of living centers, quote, everyday forms of human experiences and adaptation and considers how do refugees imagine and build a home, a refuge in the midst of confinement. And so to conclude, Here, I want to amend uh, this to how do orphans, if they're orphans at all, imagine and build a home in the midst of an institution like an orphanage? Um, This is not to romanticize orphanages because, um, as many have shown, uh, they are problematic and can be corrupt and can contribute to to the actual problem. Um, Rather, it's to highlight how transnational adoption and human rights discourse don't allow orphans to be subjects who might eventually assert their agency through acts of care, love, labor, resistance, memory, and survival. Instead, they can only be understood as abject racial subjects whose rescue, um, whose only chance at full life is through transnational adoption. So in other words, um, why is it that the, quote, universal subject can only be universal in the geography of the United States and through the adoption by a white family? you know, why not imagine, support, and enact policies that would enable children and families to thrive where their families and communities already exist? Um, So yeah, uh, that concludes. And um, thank thank you for, um, again, listening and being here.
0: I'll just start with uh, two items. So recently in the news, um, a South Korean adoptee uh, to the United States, Adam Presper, uh He was deported from the United States a couple of years back, and he was recently uh the court South Korean court ordered uh the agency who handled his adoption to compensate him uh the amount is seventy four thousand seven hundred uh, dollars u s dollars uh, for mishandling his adoption to his uh, U.S. parents, uh, who did not put in the proper paperwork in order to make sure that he was documented. I mean, uh, th- and then uh, there's another uh, news news item that happened recently, um, a, a TikToker. Uh, she uh, was uh, critical of Kelly Ripa's comments uh, regarding uh the actress lana condor's uh, sort of adoption experience uh being adopted from vietnam and coming over and sort of highlighting how the experience was must have been wonderful for the parents you know like like you discussed in your presentation uh you know they, they were saving her from this you know horrible place and then plucking her you know you know to the united states to this wonderful you know you know golden paradise but then not looking at looking at it from the, you know, the child's perspective, right, it might, might be traumatic, uh, you know, they m- might not be able to adjust, uh, etc. I mean, um, I don't know if you have certain comments about these two particular situations, uh, and how it uh, relates to, you know, sort of your presentation tonight, and uh, overall work in terms of uh, discussing transnational adoption.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, thanks uh, for for both of those, and and maybe I'll start with the second, even though I'm actually not familiar with it. Um, so thanks for bringing that to my attention. Um, so I, I I do know. Uh, I mean, I've I've seen um, a couple of her movies, Lana Condors movies, and um, but I hadn't heard about the Kelly Rippa thing. But I do think that it it really is illustrative of that dominant adoption discourse of, that um, I think a lot of uh, people are trying to. Um, push back against, right, and um, provide an alternative uh, discourse and um, an understanding, right, about what the adoption experience is and what it does. And um, so I'd be interested to, to, I'll I'll have to take a look and try to find that TikTok critique of it, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's like, you know, a critique that a lot of folks have and maybe aligns with some of the stuff I was saying in terms of how this opposite feature isn't guaranteed. There's this presumption that when children get adopted from another place, that they um, are are going to have this you know magical life, and um, and that they should be lucky and they should be grateful. Um, but you have these examples like the Crasper example, uh, and this is you know his example is um, is very difficult because he. Um, If I, you know, there's so many details, but part of it was he um, was in foster care because his parents abused him. And then he, you know, he goes to jail because he breaks into his his, um, former adoptive parents' home to retrieve some of his stuff. And in doing so, um, this kind of flags the immigration um, uh, and uh, deportation process. And so there's this case in which the first the you know the adoptive parents the adoption agency doesn't inform the adoptive parents and that's why he sues the adoption agency uh in, in Korea um that that he needs to be naturalized but then the other aspect of, of course is that the the parents were abusive toward him
1: and um and uh and, and then you have this um government system
2: that is more concerned with ideas of criminality and uh, upholding this the these neoliberal ideas of, of uh, who is a criminal and and that these criminals should be deported uh, regardless. And so th- th- these laws that were passed in the '90s that enable him to be deported um, do not give judges any discretion. And, and so um, even though he had. Lived here, uh, you know, almost his whole life, and doesn't, you know, didn't know Korean. Uh, he was deported to Korea, and um, and separated from his family, from his his partner, his spouse, and his children. And so, th- there's multiple examples, you know, dozens of uh, cases of adoptees being deported. Um, and then the other thing I mentioned was rehoming, where uh, you know adoptive parents are parents are are adopting children, and then. Within sometimes weeks, they are uh, going on to like social media sites and trying to rehome their child because they're having difficulty uh, adapting, uh, you know, incorporating the child into the family. And so uh, Reuters, which is a news service like the Associated Press, they did this um, in-depth expose about rehoming and finding, you know, 500 cases in just the investigation that they found um there's 500 cases of rehoming in which uh children are being essentially adopted a second time but with no state oversight there's no there's no um, uh regulation of it and and so what we think of as forever families oftentimes uh can end up in these really um horrific situations
0: in terms of this book manuscript of yours uh, when did you begin it and how long did the research take in order to get to this particular phase
2: yeah, well, um, it it began uh, with, with the dissertation, um, and I started graduate school in 2006, but I didn't start the dissertation maybe until like 2009 um, or 10, 2009 or 10. Um, and uh, so it's been a very, very lengthy process. Uh, the book itself is, expands on the dissertation, so um, the material from the dissertation makes up maybe like a third of the book uh because the the dissertation focused on focused on adoptions from asia um but the the book um looks at uh the adoption of Asian Native American and black children and sort of looking at the how race is constructed uh in relation to each other, so it's not just that uh we construct ideas of uh Asianness and blackness and and Native Americanness. Um, but that we construct these ideas in relation to each other and especially in relation to whiteness. Um, but uh, so, think, using a comparative and relational lens to think about how race and family are constructed, and um, especially this idea of, of kind of opposite futures that, that happens in all of these um, types of
0: adoption. In terms of these uh, interracial families, um, I, I don't know if there's certain data that perhaps uh, you found or is available uh, for folks who are interested about uh, which types of, you know, mixed families stay together or, you know, more likely to break apart, you know, due to, you know, uh, race reasons, financial reasons, etc. Yeah,
2: you know, I don't know that there's any real statistics on that. I mean, the statistics that... Um... Are more clear is that you know with transnational and transracial adoption that the major the vast vast majority are are white parents adopting uh, non-white children. Um, of course, you do have cases of um, you know transnational adoption where the parents are of the same background of the child. So maybe it's like you know Asian children who are adopting or Asian parents who are adopting Asian children. You know, there's of course I know. Um, Uh, Asian adoptees who have adopted from from Asia as well. Um, So you you do have some cases of, um, same race transnational adoption. And then you do have some cases of um, maybe like a Black family adopting from Asia or a Latino family adopting a Black uh, child. Uh, But the the vast majority of adoptions are um, white adoptive parents adopting uh, children of color. And and um what research has shown is that um you know so depending on what research you look at, some research like like my talk mentioned, some research has argued that these um adoptions are um are uh unequivocally successful by, by looking at these measures of self-esteem or ethno-racial identity, but then other so, you know, studies that that um, maybe look at adult adoptees and their experiences, then it, it sort of um, those reveal greater nuance and complexity about um, the difficulties and the challenges of adoption. And and there's also a lot of people who who have um, you know critiqued these social scientific studies that again claim that adoption is sort of indisputably good because um, these these studies are in many ways self-selecting. And so when you have a study that says um, we would like to hear from um, about your adoption and it's from the adoptive parent perspective, then, you know, it's going to be a self-selecting uh, population a lot of times. And, um, and yeah, so there's, there's that aspect of, you know, maybe um, interviewing adoptive parents or surveying adopted parents rather than adoptees themselves, or in cases where they uh, survey or interview adopted children uh, or adoptees, um, maybe the parents are are there w- during the interview process. I mean, there's a lot of um, things methodologically that that are problematic when you think about studies on adoption and 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 what they reveal and what they might um, actually. Um, not reveal and and make more murky because because of the methodological choices um, being
1: made.
0: And then in terms of um,
1: <clears throat> uh, the adoption,
0: the adoptive parents, um, what is the majority of their reasoning for doing so? Is it because you know they they're having their fertility issues, you know, or they already have a family, they just want to help. You know, other people from another country, et cetera, and sort of. Will, will, in your research, what have you found?
2: Yeah, I mean that's a great question. I think you know a lot of people have have written about this as well. Um, that uh, you know, early adoptions were really um, kind of rooted in early transnational adoptions, um, especially from um, Asia, were rooted in this idea of uh, sort of. Uh, different forms of humanitarian care and so and and part of it was like um you know christina klein talks about this idea of christian americanism where um you could sort of be patriotic and christian um in in sort of this adoption first it was kind of like adoption through um you know the kind of symbolic adoption where you symbolically adopt a a child and you know give like ten dollars a month to adopt someone um but then it became sort of uh, actual adaptions, and usually you have harry holt and Harry and Bertha holt um, who started the whole international and um and they were super they're very evangelical and so for them it was about um this idea of you know god's um, doing god's work of of rescuing um orphans and and you know their their only requirement. In these adoptions was that the adoptive parents be christian and so the early um early uh, you know transnational adoptions from south korea were plagued with um uh, a similar corruption that i talked about um today uh, in in fact in that they were a proxy adoption so there was no actual adoption agency there was no process um to to vet um uh, adopt their parents and to have them you know do home studies and do trainings and those sort of things um, and so people you know were adopting because of the the religious aspect because of the humanitarian aspect but of course because of um, you know fertility issues can be a, another um, aspect um, by the you know when we we when we went to chinese adoptions uh or the adoptions uh, from china one of the reasons why Um, that increases is because uh, um, you then had um, this sort of this increase of uh, LGBTQ families uh, adopting. And so that was uh, sort of uh, another aspect to it of like, you know, parents, um, whether they're single um, or um, uh, same sex or whatever, you know, people wanting to create families. And and um using adoption as as a means to create family, and so that that's part of the research right is that this you know even even the 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 adoptions that are rooted in these ideas of rescue, rooted in the ideas of um, militarized humanitarianism because they're following the Korean War and the Vietnam war um, that they were all wedded to these different ideas of love, whether it was the you know, this the state government, like the United States government articulating ideas of love, whether it's ad- adoption agencies talking about love or adoptive parents talking about love, like regardless of these other contexts of militarism, humanitarianism, re- religion, that that love is is sort of circulating, that discourse of love is circulating uh in all of these things, and and just the idea of creating a family, right? And so I, I tried to um, think more critically about this idea of love and, and what does it mean? What does it do? What does the discourse um, uh, do? And and how does it help in terms of constructing racialized notions of, of family and space?
0: Uh, we have our first question here from uh, Kate Firestone. Yep. Uh, Hi, Kit. Great to see you, and thanks so much for your presentation and work. Uh, They have a few questions because they arrived a little late. Um, Number one, what popular television material did you analyze for this project? You did discuss that earlier, and I've actually watched that on NBC when it was still on. And if you had uh, the time slash space, uh, are there other popular media pieces you could have included? Uh, thinking about adoption influencers like that white adoptive family in Ohio who rehomed their adoptive son from China. Uh, number two, a uh, huge congrats on the book. Uh, looking forward uh, to it since Real Families. And uh, wondering what's next for you in terms of research topics and focus.
2: Okay, yeah. Yeah, thanks, thanks, Kate. And um, thank you for, for joining um, on a Friday night. And um, yeah, so, you know, I a lot of my research uh, it focuses on like discourse um so one part of the book uh looks at um positive adoption language and social scientific studies, but the discourse that 's in this studies um another aspect looks at uh yeah congressional hearings at the domestic uh, or the national for for um, federal law and then uh looking at uh discourse in um international law and um And and so the the popular representations, I actually don't go into too much. And so what I did look at was for this particular one was, um, was the Harry Laws episode. And, you know, there's certainly other folks who have um, like the the main person that's coming to mind is, is uh, Kira Donnell, whose, whose work is on, um, you know, analyzing popular media uh, and popular representations like um, Modern Family and um, and I think this is us, um, but, but yeah, so there's some, there's some definitely some folks out there who are um, analyzing how adoption is representat- represented represented in, in some of these other uh, television shows. Um, and then the, let's see.
0: Yeah. The second one, uh, what's, what's uh, coming up for you now?
2: Right. Yeah. And well, and the, the adoption influencers, you know, I haven't heard of that Um Example you're talking about, and I do think it's super interesting to think about how social media um, is contributing to the discourse. And 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 um, this yeah sounds like this really um, disturbing example that you're offering, uh, but not not really just surprising, right? Because you know I'm on social media, Twitter and Instagram, and and you see um, how people respond to. Um, you know, the topic of adoption, whether it was the the sort of the overturning of Rover's Wade and how, you know, people were starting to, you know, really talk about, like, adoption as a solution um, to just
1: people's, um, uh, you know, post about, um, you know, just really sort of uh,
2: uncritical post about um, searching for uh someone who's relinquishing so that they could be uh parents and uh so yeah, I think social media is, is a really interesting space to to uh, look at um in terms of my next project i, I do think um i 'm not quite sure, but I think I might look at, at foster care actually in uh, maybe in california and um and have it be very interview based um, and interviewing former foster youth uh, social workers and maybe foster um, parents and um, you know my family we did foster care, we we're in Oregon, and so I had maybe like seven uh, foster siblings um, and uh, so that's that's another aspect you know part of my research is on adoption of black. Uh, children in the U.S. and um, and certainly there's like this newer movement of um, abolishing the child welfare system or the family policing system, and so I'm, I'm kind of interested in again how race is constructed, how families are constructed, but also I'm really interested in ideas of like uh, alternative kinship and um, abolition and different types of care, um, and so that's kind of. Uh, the next research project is think about abolition and um, and different forms of care. So that might be um, uh, in foster care but still very much tied to to adoption, um, especially transracial adoption.
0: And now we have a second question from uh, Riley Woods. Uh, how can adoptees be represented properly in media and everyday life? and in your experiences, have you noticed any strategies that may help the uh, common "Quote unquote" uh, adoption story.
2: Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I mean, I think it's it's similar. I mean, in terms of representation, it's very similar to a lot of issues of representation, which is that um, is to have adoptees, you know, um, at the center of of producing the content. Um, and so, you know, right now. Uh, there's an example of this is us, um, you know, the, the television show, I think it's an NBC show um, and very, very popular. And um, there's a prominent transracial um, black adoptee who uh, did advising for the show, um, but she was never given credit and she was never like really pulled on. Like you would think that the show would, you know, pull someone on sort of full time to help with that storyline Um but I think certainly that's one aspect. Um, I, I, you know, I am a big proponent of of the idea that representation matters. But at the same time, um, I'm also of the proponent that representation won't save us necessarily. Um, like having j- just having better representations of adoption, I don't think it's going to save us because I don't think adoption is like uh, because I, we need to. to, to Go another step to think about um, critiquing the institution, and um, and so you could you could have a show that maybe critiques the institution, but you know in, in those type of venues, uh, mainstream media it's they, they can only go so far because they have to think of the larger audience, and so whenever we think about um, these sort of blockbuster. Um, examples then it i do feel like there's a limit but but at the same time i'm really i do get really excited like you know when uh everything everywhere all at once you know was winning left and right and and i think it's it, i do think it, it's a it's a it's a great movie and so you know that matters because there's the people who were uh involved in it um from the back end to the front end um were asian or asian american and um and so that, that certainly
0: matters. Other question from Ryan Artis. Um, can you please talk about your hopes and wishes for what your research will achieve and inspire for adoptees and non-adoptees alike?
2: Yeah, thanks, thanks for that question. I mean, I do, um, you know, th- this talk, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it, it, it's academic, but parts of the book I try to make less academic. Um, and the, especially with the intro and the conclusion, because I feel like, you know, a lot of people with academic books, they're just going to be reading the intro and conclusion anyway. Um, and, uh, and so I, I do want it to, to, to reach, um, people who are touched by adoption. So that's, of course, adoptees, adoptive parents and birth parents, um, and people who, you know, are, Work at an adoption agency, or who are social workers, or who are lawyers, um, psychologists, Um, and and and, you know that that's the primary audience. Um, Certainly, the other audience is going to be, I think, a general academic audience who is interested in ideas about race and family and um, and nation building and um, how these things intersect, um, how ideas of Uh, race and gender and sexuality intersect or uh, how um, settler colonialism is sort of um, attaches itself or sort of embeds itself in in, uh, a lot of these um, everyday practices that we uh, uphold. And um, so, so there's, yeah, there's multiple audiences, I think, but I do think that the main audience uh, is for me is the one that is attached to adoption somehow, um, and then if if it can reach um, people who are sort of outside of the uh, adoption constellation or the adoption community, um, I think that's also exciting because I, I do think the the research is you know it offers a, good, a really
1: um, good example of how these larger structures and logics operate. In terms of um,
0: your research, uh, did you uh, get to interview a lot of these abductees at all for your uh, manuscript? uh, Heckling.
2: Yeah. Well. So. So in the manuscript, there's um, there's only a handful of interviews that appear in the manuscript. Um, I did some interviews for another. Research project on Hong Kong, specifically on Hong Kong adoptees, uh, with Amanda Baden and Alfonso Ferguson. Um, but uh, I interviewed some adult adoptees who worked at a summer camp that I also worked at, and so you know, in in those interviews, you know, we're I'm, we're we're talking about uh, birth culture camps versus the camp that we worked at, which is an adoptee. Um, uh, it's an adoptee created and led camp, whereas a lot of the birth culture camps for adoptees are created by um, adopted parents. And so this kind of gets to the question that um, I, f- I forgot uh, who, who had asked, what um, about representation. And, you know, so here's an example where adopted parents, because they were told that the assimilative practices of previous generations was was harmful, they were told like a multicultural approach of of, of um, celebrating birth culture um, in this multicultural way was um, a positive step. It was a good um, step in the right direction. And so they created these birth culture camps in an attempt to fill this, you know, quote, unquote, void. Um, and uh, but in doing so, so in doing so, it's, it's, they become really popular, like adoptees really enjoy them. Um, But then the camp that I worked at, the the director changed the birth culture camp into a different format um, with the help of other adoptees and created a different curriculum based on identity, adoption, and race and racism. Um, And so that enabled, um, you know, a larger community of adoptees to come together, not just from one ethnic group uh, or cultural background, but from, you know, anybody who is transracially or transnationally adopted to attend this camp and to think through, or not to think through, but, you know, to to um, sort of engage in these issues that in many ways are more relevant to adoptees. Um, because birth culture, um, the way that it was offered in the birth culture camps was kind of superficial. Um, and it was coming from this adoptive parent perspective, like this is something that's missing and we're going to center this. And it it actually oftentimes didn't address birth parents in the birth culture camp. So the the place from which birth culture comes and emanates, right, that sort of link was not addressed, right? Like, why are we having to have this camp? It's because we adopted you and you don't have connection to your birth parents and your birth family and your home culture, right? And so, but that part isn't, isn't really addressed, right? The part that's addressed is we're going to teach you how to maybe cook some food and learn a couple, learn some phrases and learn uh, a dance and 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 we'll have an ethnic market and an ethnic feast, right? Whereas the other camp that was created by adoptees and uh, had adoptee counselors, you know, focused on these discussions that were more relevant. And and so I think you know in terms of that's not popular representation, but that is. Um, it is a form of knowledge-making, right? And it's a part of uh, creating um, an understanding about what adoption
0: is. I want to thank Professor Myers for a wonderful uh, discussion and presentation. Uh, We look forward to his book manuscript becoming a book, hopefully coming out uh, next year, I hope. And with that, have a good evening. And remember to be an upstander if you see a fellow person in need and have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thank you very much, Professor Myers.
1: Alright, thanks Anthony. Thanks William,
0: Not uh,
1: for here. attending.